Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. I, we don't usually do this kind of a thing, but um, if, if you were serving at a camp or attending a camp this last week, we just we want to give you a round of applause. So would you stand so we can acknowledge your service? Yeah, we, I was uh, catching up with uh, my brother who went to Royal Family Kids and my father who went to Young Lives Camp uh, yesterday and just hearing about the time they had. And, and I just kept thinking about how these things don't happen if the people of God don't volunteer their time, don't take a week to go and serve. And so uh, I, I know I'm, uh, I would love to be everywhere at the same time. <laughs> and participate in everything, but um, I'm so thankful for uh, those of you stepping up and giving a week of your time. I know it's a big deal uh, to me, and I know it's a big deal to God. Uh, our youth group is on a mission trip right now. Uh, they are, they spent a week do, or a few days doing some training in Idaho, and they are in uh, near Salt Lake City now. I actually get to drive over there this afternoon to join them, so uh, if you think of it, pray for me that I'll stay awake this afternoon. Um, I don't usually do a Sunday afternoon nap, so I feel like that's going to work in my favor, and I'll try not to this Sunday afternoon. If I do, I guess I'll pull over and take a break, um, but it's, uh, it's, I'm excited to go and join the team um, to catch up with them and see what they've been doing. I was talking to my son, who's 14, 15, sorry, 15 last night, and he sounded pretty energized by their experiences, and so that was cool to see, and hopefully the rest of them will be as well. Um, I couldn't get my notes to email to my Kindle this morning, wouldn't you know, and I did get an email from Amazon saying that there was a problem emailing my notes to my Kindle, so (laughs) thanks for that, Amazon. Um, Anyhow, so I'm back to working off the laptop, which I haven't done for a while. I don't like this nearly as much, but... um, We've been doing a series on Jesus' followers, on his disciples. Uh, We've been uh, reflecting uh, last week on this idea that he chose his disciples. um, Or sorry, this week we're looking at the fact that he chose his disciples. He chose his team. Uh, Jesus went around throughout uh, the countryside in his day, and he was the one who recruited who he called. Every one of his disciples received an invitation from him. And so I was looking at the different personalities on his team. And if you if you haven't watched the the series, The Chosen, um, I, I'm just going to do a little plug for that because uh, of all the different ways of telling the story of the gospel, this TV series really brings out a lot of character and and really makes people seem like people, and, which is helpful because sometimes when we read the scriptures, it doesn't seem like they're about real people. Um, but I was reflecting on the different personalities, the different people that he called, and, and you kind of wonder at some point, is there some sort of strategy that he was employing and choosing this person or that person or what it went into his mind for the decision-making process? 
Um, I, I imagine Jesus is walking, you know, down the road, and he comes across a disciple. And was it the kind of thing where heaven parts and a, a little light shines down, and he's like, oh, that one for sure. You know, what was going through his mind? What, what helped him make his choice? Uh, how many of you have ever been put in a position where you uh, had to, you know, you had the privilege of making your choice about something? Uh, a recent family, well, it's not that recent, it was a few years ago, but uh, we decided to get our kids a new family pet. And so, of course, dogs have, you know, lots and lots of babies at once. And so you get to go and pick your dog out of the litter. And so this was, it was actually at Christmas time. We, uh, our, our family dog had passed away about a year and a half before. This was a dog that Laura and I had, Laura and I had, had since we'd gotten married. And this was a beloved dog by our kids. And it had passed away and, you know, some you allow the time of mourning to go by, and, and then the nice thing about pets is you can get a new one. And so we, we decided at Christmas we were going to surprise our kids. We did the normal thing around the tree, opening all the gifts, and then we did that like, I think Santa left something downstairs. And so the kids went running downstairs, and we had a bed down there with a collar, and like, you know, the puppy was born in November. We get to bring her home in the new year, and uh, it was... Uh, the kids were moved to tears. I mean, everyone was so excited. You know when you get flooded with uh, kind of simultaneously remembering that we lost our old dog and the excitement over getting a new dog, and we were all crying. It was honestly one of the richest Christmas morning experiences I've ever had in my life. Um, And it was just a dog bed and a collar and the promise of a new puppy. But um, (laughs) this collective tidal wave of emotions. I mean, we're all crying together. I love you. I love you too. Best Christmas ever. Um, So we spent a week or so talking about this puppy and and what we want, you know, what we want in a dog, what characteristics make the perfect dog for us. How we, of course, we talked a lot about how the kids would care for it and how they would train it and how they would manage all of the things that need to be done with it. And and none of this was going to be done by me because this wasn't my idea. I was drag kicking and screaming into this process and um, and that's exactly how it worked out. Um, we've had a few family conversations since then where I'm like throwing a fit. I have to do everything with this dog. No one does anything. And you guys are, this was your idea. Anyhow, the day comes, it's time to go and meet the puppies, take our pick of the litter. And we had this idea that we should all, we should all go and do this together. All, all five of us, you know, the expectation was that we would walk into the room where the puppies were and we would look at all the puppies, and, and I think the expectation was that, like, you know, heaven would part and light would shine down, and we'd all be like, oh, this is the one. All five of us would say, this is the one. Of course, as the time to actually pick one comes up, uh, we experienced another collective tidal wave of emotions. I mean, tears are shed, fits are being thrown, voices are raised. I mean, even the kids got upset a little bit, and every, in the end, we all had to leave the puppy pen, we had to gather in a stranger's laundry room and sort this out, um, it, and, and that resulted in the fact that Laura played the I'm the adult here card, she went back in to pick the puppy, and the rest of us slunk off to the car to lick our wounds. Um, of course... As it turned out, Laura picked the perfect puppy. You know, we have this dog, Luna. She's perfect for our family. She's wonderful. Um, We love her dearly. Uh, But the process of choosing her was a total disaster. 
Now, I don't know what the process was like for Jesus choosing his disciples, but I do imagine that there was a lot of thought that went into it and that there was a reason that he was doing this. I imagine him uh, looking at potential followers and going through the process of evaluating and choosing and even thinking in his own mind, what are the characteristics that make an ideal disciple? And then considering, who, who is it in this group that's going to get the invitation to come and follow me? And, and you wonder, what was he going for? I mean, on the one hand, there's certain identifiable characteristics that all of his disciples shared. I mean, they were all Jewish. And yet, on the other hand, when you look at their backgrounds and their personalities, their vocations, their social status, it was all across the board, which can make you wonder, well, what was it that Jesus was looking for? What was the profile he was aiming for. And, 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 you know, as we consider Jesus' first followers and we, and we think about who they were, it's, well, speaking of his first followers, it seems there's one here with us today. Oh, my goodness. Who would have guessed? Just, just take your time. Oh, my. Someone, someone get, get her a chair. This is remarkable. Who would have expected who would have expected one of Jesus' followers to walk in in a series we're doing on Jesus' followers? Well, here you go. This is a, a microphone. It makes your voice louder. Hello. My name is Joanna. Joanna? Well, I don't think I've ever heard of one of Jesus' followers with the name Joanna. Who are you? You, you don't say. Have you, uh, have you read... The Bible? The, the, it's like, you know, the B-I-B-L-E. <laughs> Luke, Luke wrote about me and my husband. He was Chusa. You know, this doesn't ring a bell. He managed Herod's household. He's kind of a big deal. Real brilliant. I, even I was. I went on a few teaching trips with Jesus, traveling around with the Twelve. Susanna was there. You know Susanna. What? Come on. How does a teacher of God's word not know this? <laughs> have, you, have you heard of Mary Magdalene? Oh. <laughs> yep, yep, I've heard of Mary. Uh, of course. All the men remember Mary. <laughs> Anywho, yeah. <laughs> I walked with Jesus almost from the beginning. Real brilliant bloke. In fact, I was one of the primary donors that kept his ministry financially afloat, not to mention adding a bit of celebrity presence to his ministry. <laughs> he name-dropped me just a few times to get into a restaurant or two. Oh, really? I, I guess I just imagined Jesus producing coins out of thin air wherever he needed money and, and using Jedi mind tricks to get into restaurants. <laughs> if only. I mean, I suppose he could have, but, you know, in my experience walking with him, it really seems that Jesus would rather use people to accomplish his purposes, almost like he prefers to demonstrate his divine power through the obedience and faithfulness of his servants, rather than just zapping our world to how it should be. Oh, I, I suppose that makes a lot of sense. I mean, more than a perfect world, it seems like our Creator's after relationship with His creation. Yeah, yeah, something like that. 
Well, Joanna, I, I have to admit, I think a lot of people today would be a little surprised that a woman had such a prominent role in Jesus' ministry. Oh, really? Why? Why is that? Uh, uh... You're surprised. You're surprised he would call a woman. Did you see the men he called? Bunch of buggers. I mean, fishermen were exactly the top recruits when it came to building a kingdom. What about Simon the Zealot? Do you even know who the Zealots were? They were these super religious groups of people who were violently opposed to the Roman rule. Violently. You would probably compare them to the militant groups of anarchists today. You know, Levi was a tax collector, right? A, a tax collector. Let me tell you, just having him around created problems for us more than once, and every time that Simon was cooking, well, Levi was worried he'd be poisoned. Of course, Mary Magdalene had a reputation herself. You could say we were quite the motley crew. Wow. It, it almost sounds like Jesus was intentionally trying to create a stir by who he was willing to associate with and who he called to walk together. Yeah. I think that he really enjoyed challenging us to get along. Really, to do more than get along. To love each other. So many of us came from such different backgrounds and had such different values in many ways. I mean, what does a fisherman have in common with an aristocratic woman like myself? Yet, there we all were, walking and traveling together, learning and talking together. I imagine that could be a pretty contentious environment at times. Yeah, it could. But you know, Jesus had a way of keeping the peace. Like I said, brilliant bloke. He was like, he really was like the glue that held us together, and he was the power that tore down the walls of hostility between us. He told us at one point, I am giving you all a new command. Love each other as I have loved you. You know, he would go so far as to say that the way the world would know we were his followers was by how well we loved each other. He loved reminding us of that when we would argue. So, one thing we started saying to each other when disagreements or contention arose among us was, are you going to keep following Jesus? Because I'm going to keep following Jesus. <laughs> it was our way of agreeing that we'd better figure out how to lay this issue aside, because to follow Jesus is to love one another. To love who? <laughs> to love... Each other. One another. Oh, okay. I just, your accent's a little... I couldn't quite tell what you said. Well, that's a, that's a pretty high standard to follow Jesus, is to love one another. I, that's a hard thing to live up to at times. I mean, I think today we separate the idea of loving others and following Jesus from any obligation we might have toward, toward actually going out and loving others. I mean, in other words, people would think it was possible to follow Jesus while at the same time judging and rejecting his other followers who they might feel justified rejecting. I, I mean, especially people who maybe don't share our political opinions or don't take some of his teachings seriously enough or take some of his teachings way too seriously. I mean, these are all good reasons for us to, to not get along, right? Good reasons? Oh my, that's rubbish. Who'd have more reason to reject each other than a zealot and a tax collector? Or an aristocrat and a prostitute? Jesus didn't let us off the hook, and in the end, we're so glad he didn't. 
The choice to love and serve each other gave way to some of the richest and most rewarding relationships of my life. I couldn't imagine the world without Levi and Simon and even Mary. You all might want to rethink Jesus' words a bit. He seemed to be pretty clear in my day that all the law and the prophets hinged on the idea of loving God and loving your neighbor. Well, when you put it like that, yeah, maybe we have some things to reconsider. Thank you so much for coming and sharing with us today, Joanna. Oh, the pleasure was all mine. And remember this is his command. <laughs> Love each other as he has loved you. Cheerio. Joanna exits to raucous applause. Oh, sorry. You know, I could, I could see that. I could see one of Jesus' motivations in building his team. Thank you. Oh. I could see one of his motivations in building his team. This whole idea of challenging, putting his disciples in a challenging environment where they have to love each other. I'm reminded of his words in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, you, you know, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. He said, but I'm saying to you, love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you. And then he points out, what good is it if you just love those who love you? What good is it if you just love those who are like you or who are on your side? He says, even the tax collectors and the sinners, even the people that you would reject and condemn, even they love the people who are like them. But Jesus was in that sermon, and I think, throughout his ministry, challenging his people to be different, to be different than the world around them. He really has called his people to be set apart. He wants us to be holy like our Father in heaven is holy. And so I think part of the reason that he brings people to walk with him is for the specific opportunity that it gives us to be challenged in this command that he's given us to love one another to be challenged in our interactions with each other as we try to be faithful to the command that he's given us. I think about the design diversity that was in Christ's followers, people from the whole spectrum of, of walks of life in the first century. And I'm reminded of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians where he likens the body of Christ to a, a human body. He uses this idea of how a human body is comprised of all these different parts and that and he uses that idea to show how the family of God is supposed to look at itself and in, in its different members. I want to read a little bit from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I'm going to read from the message version today. Usually I don't do that, but I love the way that the message puts it. Um, and so uh, we'll start reading in verse 14. Paul writes to the church. He says, I want you to think about how all this makes you more significant and not less. And he's talking about, again, differences in the body of Christ. He says, a body isn't just a single part that's blown up into something huge. It's all the different but similar parts arranged and functioning together. Our bodies aren't just like a giant nose or a giant ear, but you have all of these different connected and, and related. Some are similar, some are not. They're all human parts uh, put into a body, and that's what makes a body. He says, if foot, imagining foot as a person, if foot said, I'm not elegant like hand, embellished with rings, 
I guess I don't belong to this body. Would that make it so? So if a foot were to get the idea in its mind, I don't really belong in this body because I'm not like the hand, would the foot stop belonging to the body for, for reason of having that thought? No, of course not. He continues, he says, if ear said, I'm not beautiful like I, transparent and expressive, I don't deserve a place in the head, would you want to remove it from the body? If the body was all eye, how could it hear? If it was all ear, how could it smell? As it is, we see that God has carefully placed each part of the body right where he wanted it. He says, but I also want you to think about how this keeps your significance from getting blown up into self-importance. So on the one hand, know that you are a vital and important part of the body. On the other hand, hold with that thought in your mind the fact that you are part of something that's bigger and greater. He says, no matter how significant you are, it's only because of what you are a part of that you have value. An enormous eye or a gigantic hand wouldn't be a body, but it would be a monster. What we have is one body from many parts, each its proper size and each in its proper place. No part is more important, on it. no part is important on its own. Can you imagine the eye telling the hand, get lost, I don't need you? Or the hand telling the foot, you're fired, your job has been phased out. As a matter of fact, in practice, it works the other way. He says, the lower parts, the more basic, therefore, uh, and therefore, sorry. He says, as a matter of fact, in practice, it works the other way. The lower the part, the more basic, and therefore, the more necessary. You can live without an eye, for example, but you cannot live without a stomach. When it's a part of your own body, you're concerned with it. It makes no difference whether the part is visible or clothed, higher or lower. You give it dignity and honor just as it is without comparisons. If anything, you have more concern for the lower parts than for the higher. And if you had to choose, wouldn't you prefer good digestion to full-bodied hair? <laughs> well, I don't know. The way God designed our bodies is a model for understanding our lives together as the church. Every part depends on every other part. The parts we mention and the parts we don't. The parts we see and the parts we don't. If one part hurts, every other part is involved in the hurt and in the healing. And if one part flourishes, every other part enters into the exuberance. I think when we consider this idea, and if we really think of ourselves this way, and Scripture intentionally tries to, uh, attempts to corral our minds into the thought that we exist as the body of Christ together. But when we really think about it this way, we begin to see that Jesus wasn't looking for a one-size-fits-all disciple. Part of the power of the body of Christ is all the different parts that make it up. And so he was intentionally looking for different kinds of disciples because he wants the body of Christ to be effective. We're called and we're chosen to walk together, and we're called and we're chosen to walk with people who aren't like us because we need people who aren't like us. We find our own benefit in that, and the body of Christ finds benefit in the diversity amongst its members. There's a number of uh, social scientists who have been looking at our society over the last 10 to 20 years, and, um, and they've noticed, and probably you've noticed as well, that our society has become increasingly uh, separate from one another. I saw a recent survey that said a third of Americans now believe that in their lifetime it will be necessary to take up arms against the government. Um, these are the kinds of trends that 
lead to uh, horrible and awful types of things. I really believe that the body of Christ is supposed to be different. Part of what's contributed to that increasing hostility is something that uh, social scientists have called the big sort. This idea that, that people are increasingly moving away from people that they don't agree with or people that challenge them, neighborhoods where they don't feel like everyone's like them, and moving into increasingly homogenized cities and communities and neighborhoods. Um, This is one of the things that, of course, politicians try to capitalize on when they redistrict election uh, districts, is they go, okay, all of the red people moved into this category. We're going to draw a line around that. All the blue people moved over here. We're going to draw a line around that. And so they're trying to capitalize on the division in society. Um, As we less and less interact with people who challenge us, we more and more find it easy to... um, to judge them. We find it more and more easy to dehumanize them. We find it more and more easy to uh, consider them as hostile towards us, and they find it easier to consider us as hostile towards them. I really believe that the gospel has power to save our society from itself, but the people of God have to lead the way. We have to be people who are willing to walk with those who are not like us, who don't share all of our opinions, who offend us at times. To be kingdom-minded is to say, I need you. To be kingdom-minded is for the zealot to say to the tax collector, a a militaristic, violent uh, um, objector to Roman rule to say to the tax collector, a compliant, traitorous Jew who is working for the Roman government, is to say to him, I need you. It's wrong for the Pharisee or the teacher of the law to say to the uneducated fisherman, I can't learn anything from you. It's good for the children of God to look at one another and to say, I have desperate need of you. Let's walk together and let's be effective building the kingdom together. It's good for the children of God to say, my life is incomplete without the full membership of the body of Christ participating in my walk with God in some way. This doesn't necessarily mean that you have to show up at a church and feel immensely close to everyone. And and it doesn't mean that you can't get some space at times. I mean, on these hot summer nights, I will find myself throwing a leg out from under the covers. And I don't know what it is, but my whole body just needs that leg out for a time. And the leg really needs out for a time. But the thought has never crossed my head in the middle of a hot summer night to cut off my leg. Or I'm sure the thought's never occurred to my leg to run away. Um, but it's okay at times. We need a little space. Different circumstances mean different things, but our commitment to be connected and immersed in the full body of Christ needs to be unwavering. We really can't separate this idea of walking with God, of loving Him, from walking with His followers and loving them as well. These ideas are bound together in Scripture. These are things that we need to do more than just proclaim are true. These are things, these are opportunities that we have to to live it out. Um, So the question is, do we find ourselves in a place where when when we're encountering a challenging brother or sister or when we're trying to make a decision about 
where we fit in this whole thing. Do we find ourselves in a place where we want to argue with God about where he's put us or who he's put in our lives or who, where we should be in his body? Or do we find ourselves in a place where we're submitting to our Lord and Savior and saying to him, okay, you've placed me here in proximity to these people in this community. I guess we need to figure out how to follow Jesus together, how to walk together. One way that we grow in our relationships with each other is when we walk in obedience together. Uh, there's nothing that, uh, like considering all these who were off volunteering at these different kingdom efforts that we had, were involved in in the community, serving teen moms and serving foster kids, um, I feel in my heart a draw towards people. I didn't go to either, either one of the camps. I feel in my heart a draw towards these people because I see people being obedient to God. Obedience is something that can really have a powerful unifying effect. And it's pretty cool because Jesus set up our gathering as an opportunity to be obedient to him every week. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, and we'll have the worship team come up and uh, prepare to approach the Lord's table. But on the night he was betrayed at the Last Supper with his disciples, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he gave it out to his disciples and he said to them, this is my body that is broken for you. He said, I want you to take it and eat it, share in it in remembrance of me as often as you gather. The Apostle Paul talking about the body of Christ being broken used it as an analogy for the church to be unified. He said, what, was, is Christ divided? Is there more than one Christ? It, aren't you all from the same body? Aren't you all? Isn't it just one loaf that we gather around and share? Jesus Christ is a big enough banner for all of us to gather under, no matter how different we might think we are from one another. After dinner, the, uh, the Christ took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He held the cup and he said, this cup represents a new covenant between God and humanity. Paul, writing of this covenant, said, in this new covenant, God is no longer counting our sins against us. And Jesus passed the cup around the table. He said, drink this cup. And then as often as you gather, I want you to drink it in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul said to the Corinthian church that as, as often as they gather and eat the bread and drink the cup, they are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. And so each week, as long as we gather together at the Lord's table and we share in his supper, we are proclaiming God's sacrifice, this truth that Jesus paid it all, this truth that God's no longer counting our sins against us, this truth that Jesus has fulfilled all that the law and the prophets needed to, uh, commanded to be fulfilled, everything the Old Testament foretold. And that we're now living in this new covenant and we're living in this new command that Christ has given us. We're reminded again that new command is that we would love one another as he has loved us. No matter, no matter who it is that God brings alongside you this week, I pray that you will love them. That you will see them as a part of, as a, as a part of the body, right? As a, as a part of your body that you're a part of. Uh, these are the people of God. Um, and we are privileged to love and serve one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gift of grace. We thank you for calling us to, to be here in this time, in this place with these people. 
We thank you for this community. We thank you for the other congregations that are represented in this community. We thank you, Jesus, that you have torn down the dividing wall of hostility. That in your kingdom, we are invited to all be one. We're all to be made one. Holy Spirit, would you uh, just search our hearts today and any feelings of superiority, any feelings of judgment, any feelings of disdain that we may have for others, uh, would you weed those things out? Anywhere that we have been wounded or hurt by members of our body, we ask that you would bring healing, that you would help us to forgive. Lord, it's our desire to be people who are living uh, effective lives, lives that are making a difference in your kingdom. And so we just acknowledge our need for one another today, for that to be possible. We acknowledge this in in Jesus' name, and we come to the table uh, ready to receive your goodness for us today. Amen. So as we uh, sing another song or two together, I just want to invite you to come up. The table's set. Uh, there's loaves uh, that can be broken and uh, tear off a piece of the loaf and, and dip it in the cup um, and just receive the body and the blood of Christ together as he has commanded us to.